Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all in here this morning. Glad that you made it today. As you can see, if you haven't been in the chapel since we began a little construction project in the back, I want to let you know what we're doing. If you remember, the refresh campaign that we did a few months ago allowed us to touch a lot of the worship spaces around the church, and we hadn't planned on doing anything in this chapel space, but because people were energetic and generous, we were able to repair the angel doors that are at the rear of the chapel. Apparently, when they were built, someone remind me, 15 years ago-ish, right? Or so, 15, 20, something like that. Um, When they were built, the glass on the inside of the doors that are the angels were heavier than the wood frames could support. So I'm not sure how that worked, but whatever. So over the years, the, the housing that slides the doors began to kind of break down and the wood frames themselves began to crack. And one of the angel doors had actually, the angel glass uh, in the door had begun a little hairline crack. So they've all been taken out. The, the one has been repaired. They're building completely new frames for those windows and they'll be finished in about 10 to 12 days. And so we've got maybe another week or so of people walking in awkwardly after I've started talking, right? <laughs> huh. um, come on in, come on in. I couldn't help. It was K. I had to do it. Um, so we're going to, you know, be graceful to our friends who show up in the next few minutes because, you know, they can't get in the back. Um, and we are, come on in. Mona, it's okay. Come on in. Um, And so we will, though, for next week, just for Sundays, for this coming Sunday and for next Wednesday, um, we're going to have a door um, made in that. I'm not sure why it wasn't, because my concern is fire exit. Um, And so don't start a fire. Um, And then we will be okay for Bible study. So we're really excited about that. In addition to those angel doors, we're going to be doing a complete replacement of the wood and the doors of the exterior of the chapel too, the red doors, because they have totally rotten. Um, The wood, the water has gotten in the frame itself. I mean, don't do it, but you could basically push your finger through it. Um, And so the glass, the stained glass, Stanton, who is doing the creation window, is doing all of the stained glass, the angel doors, all that stuff. So it'll be really well taken care of. The exterior door, the stained glass will be removed, the wood will be rebuilt, um, and everything will look great. And they're going to seal it in a way that maybe it wasn't when it was installed. Good morning. And it will be good for a long time. And so that is what we're doing in the back. So it's a very good thing. It's just going to make it awkward for a week or two. Um, So good to see you all again this week. Before I open with a prayer, just a, an FYI, I was wrong last week. Your bookmark was right. We had initially planned for two weeks on chapter one because chapter one was so long. And I just didn't look at the schedule and plowed right ahead in chapters one and two. But because a number of people missed last week for helping or funeral or all that sort of stuff, a few people asked if I could do some recap of one and two. And so we're going to start there, and I want to plant the seed now. If you've got any questions about what we have done in these first few weeks, whether that's about how we got the Bible, you know, how the canon was established, um, or anything doing with dealing with Luke chapters one and two, begin to formulate those questions. I know you can't necessarily fire off questions right away, 
but I want you to give me a little bit of direction as to what may have been unclear or most interesting or something you want to just hear again, and we'll make sure we do that today. So now that we've got most of our friends here, the Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we come together today open to the way you are revealing yourself in the world. We ask that you help us make space for you. We can feel very busy, very full, very heavy. And for this next hour, we ask you to open us up and fill that space that we may be inspired by the work you have done in the past, the work you're doing now, so that we can respond to the way you would have us do work in the future. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, recap of chapters one and two. Where I want to start with that, you want to come on in, Nancy? You can come on in. What I want to start with is setting the stage for the Gospels themselves. One of the things I said, and a question that I've gotten since week one, I talked about why I say Old Testament and not Hebrew Bible. And what I said week one was it's because they're a different set of books, right? It is not the same canon. It is mostly the same. But one of the big differences is the way that it ends. So I'll say that a different way. Mostly the same books, but they are in a different order. And the different order actually matters theologically. The Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew canon, is called the Tanakh. And if you've never heard that phrase, I want to make sure that you, you have now. I would, I will, I'm sorry, I know you're far back there, but I'm gonna try and write big. T-A-N-A-K-H, Tanakh. Now, you have likely heard of the Torah, right? The Torah is the law. The Torah would be the first five books of the Old Testament and of the Hebrew Bible, the same. Then we've got the Nevi'im. That is an N-E-V-I apostrophe I-M, which is a transliteration of Hebrew. If you may not have ever heard this before, Hebrew has no consonants. So ancient Hebrew was nothing but vowels. And it's very difficult to read ancient Hebrew because not only did it really not have consonants, it also did not have spaces. And so, in essence, what ancient Hebrew looks like is a series of characters with no space. And not only that, but the words themselves, the way that they are pronounced, is the only way you know what the word is, basically. I mean, if you can imagine English, if you were to take out all of the vowels or all of the consonants of particular words, many words would be exactly the same. How do you know what a word is, right? And so what scholars have had to do, both of the Hebrew language, just independent of scripture, but also of the Bible, is in essence rebuild the language. They look at characters and they fill in the gaps 
And then they take those gaps and create spaces where they think a space would be, and they more or less try to make it make sense, right? So if there are some letters that could be this word, but it's totally out of context, then it's probably that word. And more or less, that's how they've had to rebuild it. So Hebrew is, at this point in time, and particularly because of the creation of Israel as a nation state, it's really been pretty much codified, right? The modern Hebrew that people learn is not like the ancient Hebrew, but it is more or less a modernized version of the same language. It's, it's probably even more difficult than if you were to go read Old English, right? I mean, Old English is not modern English at all, but it's probably even easier than trying to go back to ancient Hebrew. So you have odd things like apostrophes in the middle of words that do not mean possessive or anything like that, like it does in English. It simply notes the pronunciation. So for this word, when you've got two eyes next to each other, you would say neveim. It would not be navim or anything like that. And you know that because of the apostrophe, which is more information than you wanted, but that's just why you've got random things like that. So you've got the Torah, the neveim, and the ketuvim. K-E-T-U-V-I-M. The law, the poetry, and the prophets. That makes up the whole Hebrew Bible. And so we say Tanakh. That is the word that means Hebrew scriptures. When the Tanakh was codified, it told one story, right? It began and then it ended. The Hebrew Bible ends with the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel ends with a vision for the resurrection. And so if you can imagine the creation of the world with the resurrection of the dead, that's a very nice story, right? The arc of that story with all the poetry, all the law, poetry, prophets, everything in between, it's bookended, right? With creation and resurrection. Not unlike if you were to look at Genesis and Revelation, right? Our arc with the Old and New Testament starts with creation and it ends with a recreation, right? Not necessarily resurrection, but a new creation. The same thing happens with the Hebrew scriptures. When those scriptures were beginning to be used by Jesus followers, right? For the first hundred years, for the first couple hundred years, they weren't Christians. They were just Jesus followers. It wasn't until Rome decided to make fun of them and call them Christians that that name stuck. So when, you're fine, when they began to use those scriptures, somewhere along the line, the Old Testament was changed to end with Malachi. So if you look in your Old Testament, it will end kind of, I'll qualify that, it will kind of end with Malachi. Malachi ends with a prophecy. In Malachi, we hear, see the day is coming when all the arrogant evildoers will be stubble. The day that comes shall burn them up, says the Lord of hosts. Yada, yada, yada. Gotta yada, yada, all the burning in hell stuff. 
Then, that was a joke. I mean, are you all awake? Okay. Then it says, Remember the teaching of my servant Moses, the statues and the ordinances. Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of parents to their children and the hearts of children to their parents, so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. See, I will send Elijah. Elijah's already been here, right? In the story, Elijah's already been here. Why I'm going back to this is because in chapter 3 of Luke, what happens? In chapters 1 and 2, we have heard the stories of John and Jesus' coming. At the beginning of chapter 3, who's on the scene? John. And who do people think John is? Elijah. Why? Because Malachi said. So to make that connection is important. The Gospels do not stand alone. The Gospels are a bridge. You could sort of understand the Gospels as bridging the old revelation and the apostolic age or the new revelation. And so all along the way, these gospel writers are not accidentally referring to things in the past or the future. They are building this bridge one step at a time. And so it's important for us to understand that all of these miraculous events that lead up to the birth of John and Jesus, and then in chapter three, the start of their ministry, connects way back to the tradition that has been set in the Jewish hearts and minds for hundreds of years. You may remember that I said on the first week, God was silent for hundreds of years. And that when John shows up and is the voice crying out in the wilderness, it hearkens back to the burning bush. Because the story of the burning bush with Moses is the similar structure, right? God's silent for hundreds of years, and then all of a sudden, God's back. And Moses blows into Egypt and says, there's something new going on. God has been silent in our telling of the story, caveat, God has been silent in our telling of the story for hundreds of years to set up John as that returning Elijah to declare prophetically that God is back and doing something new again. So that Jesus links back to all of the big, big boys, right? Jesus links back to Adam, to Abraham, to Moses, and to David. And we walked through a lot of those links in the first two chapters. And we'll touch on that again in just a second. Okay, that's a little bit of context. Now with chapters one and two, we've been through nine big things in the first two chapters. And I'll just hit them in order real fast. And then we'll see if there are any questions about the way they connect. The first comes the dedication. Dedication to, dedication to Theophilus, who we do not think 
is probably a real person, right? Because Theophile means God lover. And so it's very likely that Luke is writing to God lover, but really writing to us as God lovers, right? So Luke dedicates this story. <laughs> Luke dedicates this story to all of us. Then we've got Gabriel doing double duty. The first being a visit to Zechariah in the temple, where he foretells the birth of John, and then a visit to Mary where he foretells the birth of Jesus. Then we've got Mary's visit to Elizabeth, and we get that beautiful Magnificat. Then we've got John being born, and that beautiful song of Zechariah. Then Jesus is born. Then the angels declare who Jesus is first to shepherds. Then Jesus is presented in the temple, and we get another song to Simeon, of Simeon. And then Jesus is lost, sort of, and found teaching in the temple by Mary and Joseph. Of all of those touchstone moments of chapters one and two, we can reconnect some of those dots if you want, but I'd love to see if there are, have been any questions these first few weeks about the way things connect. I see it coming. Because I feel, I always trust that if someone's got a question, many others have the same question. Absolutely. So the question is, what is the significance for the angels telling the shepherds? So I'll start answering that question by saying, remember that the angels appear to shepherds in Luke only. We have no shepherds, no angels in the sky in Matthew, right? So Mark and John have no birth narrative at all. Mark and John just simply start with Jesus's baptism. Matthew and Luke, who have the nativity stories, have radically different nativity stories. And remember, in essence, the only thing that really is similar is an immaculate conception and Jesus was born in Bethlehem. That's about it. Everything else is pretty much different. So in Luke, the angel, Luke is connecting Jesus to historic figures of Judaism. And so Jesus is the new creation, Adam, right? Jesus is revealing a renewing of the law in Moses. Jesus is coming to the world with humility. And to double that down, the angels reveal Jesus first to the shepherds. So who was the shepherd in Jewish history? David. So although it is very, it is fine for us to read this story as there were angels in the sky talking to shepherds. That's fine. I think that. I believe in angels. And so why wouldn't the angels go to the shepherds? It is also important for us to note that Luke, along with all these other people, is a storyteller. And so think of all the things that happen in Jesus's life that are not in the Gospels, right? Tons, huge. I mean, I, I'm just going to throw a number out there out of thin air, but I mean, what? 1% of his life is recorded in the Gospels, right? I mean, it's so tiny if you think about someone 30-something years of someone's life. So why this? It is very much to make sure we remember that David was important and that Jesus is carrying that mantle, 
right? He is from the line of David. The shepherds reiterate that Davidic icon of shepherd. And so that's really, that is most likely why. And they were probably nice people. So, <laughs> yes, we'll start here. Start there. So comment was surprised that the Hebrew language wouldn't be, have been handed down through rabbis over the years. It was. That is the only reason they knew what it was. Because there were songs, right? So in synagogue worship, just like us, um, Jews would sing songs, right? And so they had some idea of what the language sounded like, but it was an oral language, which is hard for us to even... I don't know that there's any way we can really even understand what that really means. It is a full language that people could not read or write, but could sing and could speak, and that makes no sense. Except if we really think about literacy, I mean, literacy is a, a very modern thing, right? So how many people could speak a language that they had no idea how to read or write? Still today, although thankfully it's, you know, less prevalent than it used to be, but that's very much what Hebrew was for generations and generations. They'd get together for school and it'd be like singing, you know, Jesus loves me, this I know, right? But not knowing how, I mean, gosh, my, remember toddlers, right? They can sing all those songs, say all the words. They don't know what the words look like. They cannot write them. And so that's how they were able to rebuild the written language is because they could recall passages, right? I mean, uh, to prepare for a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah, you have to memorize scripture passages. And so the higher level you go, the more you memorize. And there are plenty of people in history who, you know, kind of historic, famously could recite whole books of the Bible. And so knowing that that existed and that, that oral connection allowed them to rebuild it based on the sounds over time. A lot of indigenous languages, yeah. It's only oral. And then how do you even write them, right? Because, I mean, that's a great example of a, a language that's only ever been oral, but it depends on who's listening, right, as to how it gets written. And so much of modern Hebrew is based on ancient Hebrew, but many of the letters are just made up. Um, they didn't exist, right? The, the structure of Hebrew looks a lot like the modern Western languages in its consonants and vowels and spaces and all that stuff. I mean, there are whole, whole areas of the world, like in Asia, that don't look like that, right? They're not structured that way. So had a Chinese scholar tried to develop Hebrew from the ancient to the modern, it may have looked very different. You may have gotten characters for words because the letters didn't exist. It's only because Europeans did it that they filled in the gaps the way that they understand how language works. It still is read right to left, but Erica. So question harkens back to the story with John, I suppose. And there are many connections about John's birth that look like the story of Abraham and Sarah, right? Zechariah and Elizabeth, too old to bear children, right? Have been barren anyway. And so the idea of being able to have a child seems just too far-fetched. 
but nothing's impossible with God, right? So any Jew reading that story immediately thinks of Abraham and Sarah, right? No question. And so what they pick up is something special is happening here. When it comes to Zechariah's mouth being shut, that, you know, I, I cannot say that I've ever read that people have made an explicit link to another part of scripture, except that that's a literary technique. Um, it, there's a revelation that's kind of being held back and then revealed. So in essence, Zechariah knows something. No one else knows. And the entire pregnancy, he cannot tell. And it's only until John is there and Zechariah, in essence, reconciles with his doubt that his mouth is opened and the proclamation of his truth comes out. So I think it's less about linking it to a story and more about the way that the secret is held because Zechariah's doubt is what seals his lips, right? He questions God's ability and then God, well, he questions God's ability and then Gabriel, I guess, through God or whatever, um, shuts his mouth. And so he can't tell anybody, right? I mean, theoretically, I suppose he could have, you know, signed or written or something, but we don't know that in the story because the point is there was something special coming and there was a proclamation. That Song of Zechariah is really meant to be a prophetic moment where people hear what is really happening with John's birth. And, and that's one of those, inter those neat things for us to be able to immerse ourselves in a story and try our best to imagine what it would be like then. We know the whole story. So when Zechariah comes home and Elizabeth gets pregnant, we know what's going on. But the story never says that Elizabeth does. We assume she does. When Mary comes to visit her, what does she say? It's the jumping in her womb that triggers in her something special is happening. So we can, we can assume that Zechariah cannot tell her what is going on. Can you imagine Elizabeth? Like, crap, you know, I'm pregnant. <laughs> I mean, at some point, you've sort of lived your life, and not only have you been okay with not, I mean, you've had to reconcile with not having kids, but then at some point, like, I have a friend who just had his first child at 50, and I'm like, oh. you know, it'd be one thing if you had your fifth or your 10th child at 50, right? Because you know what's going on. Like, you get it. You, you, you can see the light, right? I mean, you just, you understand how that works, but to have never done that and then to start God bless. I mean, I pray for him every day. Um, so, I mean, Elizabeth is that, but more, right? I mean, Elizabeth just got pregnant. What is happening, right? And then Mary shows up and boom. And it's sort of like a light bulb moment of that this is something special. She had to be thinking it, right? And so... There is, there is an unpacking of the action over time that we hate that stuff, right? We don't like to wait. We don't like to not know. I mean, look at how ridiculous we have become with our information, right? Just reading an article the other day about how 
depression, anxiety, stress is caused by this information overload, right? We have way more that we can ever process. And so not only can we not even receive the information that's available to us, but we can't be thoughtful about it either, right? How many people do you know, and they are sweet, and you love them, and they think they understand stuff, and they understand nothing. <laughs> All they have is information, right? And they regurgitate information with no comprehension. In this point in time, Elizabeth would have just become pregnant. Her husband cannot talk. She is too old. What is happening? And she cannot Google pregnancy at too old. I mean, you know, there is nothing until Mary shows up. And, and there is this, this revelation over time of what's really happening. And it's kind of magical. Someone called me over here. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so if you cannot hear what's going on up here, um, the Holy Spirit is confusing, right? Is that how you started? Yes. Or to everyone. Hands, show of hands, who understands the Holy Spirit? <laughs> no? So, it's, so even trying to explain the Holy Spirit gets me real close to heresy. So, I'm going to tread lightly here because there have been, I probably would have to say that there has been more conflict within the church over understanding the spirit than probably any other single thing, period. So it is not just you. Um, the spirit is confusing in the sense that we have created a theology around the Spirit as proceeding from the Father and the Son, right? So, in essence, you've got this... Oh, there are two ways you can understand the Trinity. You're really getting the Trinitarian theology here. <clears throat> so, over time, once people accepted that God was three persons, right, you more or less had two options. You had God, uh, let's me do Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or you had Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, those are your options. There are other options, but that's really what it boils down to. This all hinges on the way the Spirit functions. And people have decided the Spirit functions differently all the way through, right? Many people misunderstand the Pentecost moment as the moment when the Spirit comes. The Spirit's been there. I mean, you've already seen it, right? The Spirit's here with Zechariah. The Spirit's all over the place in the Old Testament. The Jews believed in the Holy Spirit. Well. They believe in one God, so that's all that. Okay. I've had Muslims ask me that. You don't really believe in one God. Sure. So, Trinitarian theology has been a problem forever, um, you know, in Christian history, because it looks like you've got three gods, right, that all work together, 
and they're a good team, but I count three. And we can't do three because we are monotheistic. And so if we're monotheistic, but clearly there are three people acting here, then we create this, it's three and one, it doesn't make sense, believe it, right? I mean, that's the summary of church councils over time, right? There is, because one of the things too is you've got the word, you know, John, right? The word was God, the word was with God, the word, you know, all that sort of stuff. So that's where we get the word is the son and all that stuff. But what really makes this necessary or what really makes three necessary is this simple question, is Jesus God? If the answer is yes, then when Jesus was on earth, was God not in heaven? And so if the answer is no, God was also in heaven, which is what the gospels say, then either Jesus isn't God or God was both and. That's where you get the Trinity. Because the Spirit's there, but is the Spirit really God? Well, Jesus sort of says that. Paul seems to understand it that way. So most Christians have simply run with that idea. But we could probably fudge it if we weren't committed to Jesus being God. But since we are, then either there are two or say three persons, and they've got to function in a certain way. This distinction is what caused the great schism between East and Western Christianity. And the shorthand of that is when Rome fell and Western Christianity went into the Dark Ages, they were cut off from Eastern world and the Eastern world, Christians, and then very soon after, Muslims as well, were killing it, right? I mean, they had, they had great economy, they had philosophy and mathematics and schools and libraries. It was great. Fast forward six to a thousand, 600 to 1,000 years later, as Europe's, Western Europe's getting it back together and reasserting their authority, the East says, you used to be important, Rome, but now you're old news and we have everything we've got all the power and when they began to argue about who was the most important christian they had to claim that their argument had some theological ground or else they were just children fighting over toys in the sandbox which is really what they were so what they did is they began debating this in our creed that we say on Sunday, it is basically divided into three parts. Who is the Father? Who's the Son? Who's the Holy Spirit, right? In that third part, who is the Holy Spirit? How does it start? I believe in the Holy Spirit. Proceeds from the Father and the Son. We are this. But somewhere along the line, the Eastern Church began saying that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. The end. There was no and the Son. And the difference in the Greek between the one and the other 
is one iota. It's the homoousion clause in their debate. And the difference is an I, a letter I. And so when you say something like it does, it's, you know, give one iota sort of thing, or it doesn't matter, you know, use the iota in some phrase. What's the phrase? I don't give one iota, right? That is what it is, right? That's where that comes from. Because the iota split Eastern Western Christianity. Isn't this fun? Don't you love this stuff? Okay. So back to the Holy Spirit in general. The Holy Spirit has functioned throughout time and continues to function. As Anglican Christians, which I know not everyone in this room is, but as an Episcopalian, as an Anglican Christian, we ground ourselves in the truth that God continues to reveal today. That revelation did not stop when the Bible stopped. That is a different way of being Christian than our brothers and sisters who are Roman or Orthodox or Protestant. So all our cousins who are in those other churches, there is a starting place in their theology that at least to some degree, now you've got mystic traditions in all of those groups and all that sort of stuff, but at least to some degree within the legal traditions, there is this idea that we can figure everything out based on scripture alone. As Anglicans, we really do accept the authority of scripture and really believe that the spirit is doing stuff right now. So as we experience new things in the world, as we experience each other differently, we can accept that God is trying to reveal something new to us about how to be a follower of Jesus. And if we change what we do, we were not wrong before necessarily, but we just simply had not understood what God was trying to reveal. So it's an easier way of transitioning over time than other traditions because we've, we start from this idea that the Spirit is still in the world doing stuff. And it's our job to listen and discern it. That really doesn't answer your question, but that's all I got. Sorry. Okay, that's a good question. So question being, what, what would a, what would a pre-Jesus Jew think? And then how about a post-Jesus Jew, like our Jewish friends now? Like sort of where is the spirit in all of that? And throw out the Muslims as well, right? So where does the spirit work, right? Because we all root ourselves with Abraham. And so if God reveals, you know, that is two of the four big covenants we have in common, right? We've got the Noah covenant and the Abraham covenant, all three traditions. Then you've got Jews and Christians that sort of inherited the Mosaic covenant. And then you've got Christians who have the Christian or the Christ, the new covenant, the new Testament. 
Jews for sure understand that God's working in the world. But the Spirit of God is not a separate person in the way that it is for Christianity, right? That's just God. Jews, because Jesus is really what messes it up, right? Um, it's because of Jesus that we had to do this. Everything was just fine and monotheistic until Jesus showed up. And so it's very easy to talk about God as one person and God's spirit doing stuff. Totally, that's fine, right? It's when you throw Jesus in the mix and you try to understand Jesus as more than a prophet or a rabbi, but as divine, as son of God, as incarnate God in the world, when you start to do that, then the question comes, well, is the spirit actually a person of God? And that's where we get the three in one. For Jews and for Muslims, God's spirit's just God's spirit. It's true. And the spirit works in the world and affects the world, but is not a separate person like we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's that. So the language in Luke, the language in Scripture about the Spirit is no problem for Jews. It's been there the whole time, right? I mean, Spirit of God's all over the place in the Old Testament. So it is no problem. We reinterpreted the Spirit because of Jesus's presence and because Jesus talked about something new, right? The Pentecost moment was something new. It was Jesus's spirit. It was not just the spirit. And it, it led us into creating this Trinitarian idea. All right. <laughs> That's heavy. Anything else popping around out there? All right, so chapter three, you ready to look ahead? We will do chapter three next week, but let's have a little preview. Where we have gotten at the end of chapter two is that Gabriel's been busy, two women have been pregnant, and two boys have been born. We understand the connection back to Malachi about what God will be doing. And so chapter three starts that action. So in essence, what you've got in chapters one and two is all of the early stuff. And chapter three kicks off the ministry. So from the time Jesus was a boy in the temple, chapter two, right? The first and second sections are about Jesus as a baby. That third section of chapter two is Jesus lost in the temple. And then immediately we jump into chapter three, John and Jesus are adults, right? So just to kind of name that progression moves fast, right? We go from babies to a few verses where Jesus is 12 to now they're adults. John is out in the wilderness. So I know you all have your Bibles. So turn to Luke. And we're going to take a look at what chapter three says. Now remember, Luke is the one of the four that wants to place this story in time and in broad context, right? Luke is the one concerned with Gentiles. And so Luke wants to make sure that when all these non-Jews are reading this story, 
They believe it. And one of the ways that he tries to encourage the belief in the truth of this story is naming all of the historic players. So we get that again. We got it at the very beginning of chapter one. We get it again here at the beginning of chapter three because we have jumped in time, right? We've made a jump of 30-ish years. Chapter three begins in the 15th year of the reign of Emperor Tiberius when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea and Herod was ruler of Galilee and his brother Philip, ruler of the region of Echuria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, ruler of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. That's a lot of people that really lived. And so that's important because we don't have photojournalism, right? We don't have GPS tracking. Jesus could be a phantom created story, right? It's like reading a fiction novel. If you don't name the historic place of this person, someone could read this story and simply think, that's a nice story. Luke wants you very much to know that Jesus was real, he lived, this is when he lived, and this is what he did. And so he makes the world small. So you see, Luke starts big, right? It's the Roman Empire. And then he slowly shrinks. It's like zooming in on a map, right? So that he zeroes right in on the local area where Jesus will be living. If you remember your Holy Week stories, right, you will also recognize some of these names. Luke was not walking around over time with Jesus. Luke sat down and wrote this whole story, which means he knows what's going to happen. And so when he names people like Pilate and Herod, Caiaphas, these people are going to come back in the passion story, right? Jesus is going to meet all these people before his crucifixion. And so Luke wants you to make sure that you know this is accurate. Then John's on the scene. John went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written, the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. This is a nerd thing to say, but if you go back to Isaiah, Isaiah punctuates this differently. Isaiah says, a voice of one crying out, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. That's subtle, but Luke has tweaked this to serve his purpose. Because John is already a known quantity. John is a lunatic out in the middle of the desert who eats bugs, okay? <clears throat> they know who John is. John is that guy. When I, when I was growing up, uh, not when I was growing up, when I was in college, there was a man who would stand. I went to a little school in a little town, and there was a man who would stand 
on Main Street, the corner of Main Street and the, the busiest corner of the not busy little town. And he would wear a sandwich board that said, repent or burn in hell on one side. And the other side was, there is no hope in the Pope, which was my favorite. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and he, kid you not, had a pink karaoke machine. I really never got close enough to find out, but I always imagined it was Hello Kitty. Um, and he would stand on the corner preaching. And kind of, I mean, he was kind of scary looking. I mean, he was certainly the kind of person if you saw, like you would take your children to the other side of the street, right? Just in case. But that is who I always think of when I think of John, right? Because there will be people who listen right? I mean, Lord knows people will apparently f listen to whatever is out there. And so there are people who will listen to people who are eccentric. John has an eccentricity that would have been known because he was that guy that everybody knew was over there yelling. So Luke connects John to the purposeful wilderness that he lived in right? So rather than saying, prepare the way of the Lord in the wilderness, John, Luke is saying, there was that voice out in the wilderness telling you to prepare the way of the Lord. Trying to validate John as reasonable part of God's work. John was a preacher who pushed against all of the stuff that the people in power liked. And we know what happens to John, right? John's going to be killed. So Luke sets up the why in chapter 3. John begins to tick through all of the things that the leadership does wrong. So not only is John eccentric, he is very much outside the norm, way outside the box. But he is out there outside the box yelling about all the people in the box. And Luke just told you who all those people were, right? Four, four, four verses earlier, Luke tells you who all the people are that John is yelling against. Now, Tiberius does not care about John. He's in Rome eating grapes. The people in Israel are going to have a big problem with John because the only thing people in power don't like is something that is unpredictable, right? It is much better that you are predictably not what I wish you were than to be unpredictable. Even if maybe you'll do what I like, you know, I'd probably rather you do what I don't like and me know you're gonna do it than me to have no idea what you might do. And John is that kind of unpredictable. And so economies don't like that. So the people in Israel, Jerusalem particularly, are having a problem with John. Now let's do a quick geography lesson. Israel, as I said before, you've got a map. Your Bibles have maps. Your commentary book for N.T. Wright has a map. But if you just imagine, we've all seen a picture of Israel, right? It's skinny and long. Israel top to bottom is about 400 miles. Israel side to side is about 150 miles, a little less. 
But Israel looks sort of like a parfait in geography. The bottom part of the parfait is a desert. The southern half of Israel that you never really hear anyone talk about, even today, is because it is completely arid nothing. Nothing can grow, there is no water, and so people don't live there. The middle part of the parfait, which is usually like the good fruit, right? So you've got the cake that no one wants, and then you've got the yummy fruit in the middle that's nice and sweet. That's Jerusalem. So Jerusalem and today Tel Aviv. So Tel Aviv is a modern city, did not exist, right? But where Jerusalem is in the, in the sort of middle to upper middle part of the country, it's really the bottom half that is desert. So around half and a little up, you've got that transitional part where there's enough water for some stuff to grow, like olive trees. Olive trees, rosemary, things like that that don't need a lot of water grow really well in that middle place. And it looks like Tuscany. Any of you ever been to Jerusalem, the Holy Land? I know some of you have, right? You know in Tuscany, those, what are those tall, skinny trees? The cypress trees, that's, they're all over the place. I was floored driving from the airport to Jerusalem. It was kind of like I was driving through Siena at, in parts. It was amazing. And so that middle place has that kind of olive tree climate. The north, where Jesus grew up, so that's Nazareth, Galilee, Tiberias, the city, um, Capernaum, is very lush, very green, lots of water, including big lakes, the Sea of Galilee, which is just a big lake. So Jesus grew up in the green, lush area. Jerusalem is in that middle place that's sort of dry. About a 30-minute drive from Jerusalem, not even, really, is the Jordan River. The Jordan River meets the Dead Sea. That's where John is. So he's not really close to Jerusalem, but he's a day's journey, right? If you wanted to go hear John, you could get to John easy enough. And so what people were doing is they were leaving Jerusalem and trekking out into the middle of no place where the Dead Sea is to listen to this preacher. And they liked what they heard. John was telling them that the way the world works is not the way God wants it to work. And that it will be changed very soon. John's meant to pave the way for Jesus. And so what we get next week is going to be that moment when Jesus meets John and Jesus comes to be baptized, which is what everyone else was doing. And so a quick word on that before we jump into the actual baptism. Jewish people are not baptized, right? So one obvious question may be, what are they doing? Because Luke talks about baptism, so do the other Gospels. There is a concept in Judaism of being cleansed. And so before you go into a temple, you are cleansed ritually, which pretty universally would have meant being dunked in water right? There are baths called mikvahs that have two sets of stairs. It's a very neat thing. Um, you would have sort of a road with a set of stairs down into a little bath, 
and then you would transition into another set of stairs and then follow a separate road where you were clean, right? So there's a very intricate set of paths that you would walk in dirty and then you would come out of the water clean. And so as you come in and get clean, this path takes you right into the temple. So anyone who, was, who would go to the temple would come in dirty, be cleansed, immersed in water, and come out clean to enter the temple. And so they can't walk back on the dirty path. So there are paths that are specifically for the clean people. Now, anyone technically, well, that's not really true. I was going to say anyone can be clean, but that's not true. Most people could be clean at some point, but there were lots of rules about how you had to prepare yourself to even be cleansed. So you could not have touched a dead body for 14 days. You could not have bled for seven days. You could not have, I mean, having a baby, you're out for months. So <laughs> there, there are all kinds of things that mean it was a lot easier for men to be ritually clean than women. It was much easier for adults to be ritually cleansed more so than our, the youngest and oldest people. If you had any kind of infection, if you were ill, um, you could not be cleansed. So they didn't even let you do it. All of those rules made the box around God smaller and smaller and smaller. John goes out into a dirty river. If anyone ever offers you water from the River Jordan for your child or grandchild to be baptized in, you know, I would say no thank you, that's so nice. Um, but if they do, just drop a little of it in the holy water. You don't, it's dirty, okay? Um, the Jordan River becomes this creek that, I mean, in all fairness, I would call it a creek. When I grew up, we would call it a ditch. Um, but it, it's not much, and it has a lot of silt in it because it has come, the Sea of Galilee is gorgeous. And the water comes all the way from the Sea of Galilee into the Dead Sea. Now, the Dead Sea is what? Highly salty, right? The reason it's highly salty is because the Jordan River has picked up all of this silt all the way down. So where the Jordan River meets the Dead Sea, not pretty water, all right? So whatever. I mean, it's not going to kill you, but it could kill you now. It wouldn't have killed you back then. Um, people were in that dirty stuff in the Dead Sea where things could not grow, being cleansed. It was not this at all, right? There was no clean path out of the clean water in the clean cistern. This was sort of messy all the way. And yet John was telling everybody that God meant it to be messy. And that all the stuff that those people had created over time were keeping you from the truth of God. A lot of people didn't like that. And next week, we'll talk more. Thank you all. Have a great week. <laughs>